Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Greetings. Uh, My name is Alexander Smalls, and I have just penned a new book called Mills Music and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen, and I'm very excited to talk about it. I'm at a point in this quarantine where I don't even know what day we're on. But what I do know is breakfast continues to be the most important meal of the day. I saw on your Instagram a couple days ago, you made a gorgeous breakfast of eggs, sage sausage, and steel cut oats. Melissa Clark from the New York Times got me so intrigued by savory steel cut oats. Tell me about this breakfast. Well, you know, I'm not one of these uh, people who likes to have my oats sweet. I discovered that oatmeal has really a brilliant flavor when you treat it like you would, uh, say, grits or couscous or grains. So I like cooking my oatmeal with stock, vegetable stock, chicken stock, and I like to mix the thick cut oats and the steel because it creates more texture. And so when I make my breakfast, I usually cook one half part of steel, one half of thick flake in chicken stock, which takes a while. I like to put a little um, coconut oil to give it that flavor. And I love to serve it with savory protein, like sage sausage, and of course, a nice egg or two to top it off. I also put red pepper flakes and black pepper. (laughs) There's a twist for you. Where do you get sage sausage? It's an organic sausage that I buy at Whole Foods. um, Now, I have made my own. uh, And when I do have the time, essentially taking some ground chicken and putting in my seasonings, you know, everything from Herbe de Provence, lots of fresh sage. That works as well. It just depends on your time. Well, we all have time right now. You know, (laughs) (laughs) it depends on what's in your refrigerator. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So um, this cookbook marries your love of food and music. How is music getting you through the isolation? I rise every morning around 5 a.m. and on my way to the kitchen to uh, make my first cup of Earl Grey tea. I pass by the Sonos and get it going on my Bach uh, radio station or my my Spotify, and classical music just immediately starts to pipe in. There is something so healing for me. Uh, there's nothing like passing through, and there's a wonderful Chopin uh, to going crazy, or a wonderful cello piece that sort of invades the air, and now and then a vocalist will come on singing a song that maybe I sang when I first started studying music, one of the art songs. And I stop and I sing through that, <laughs> and then I just keep going. But this is, it's such an incredible companion music. And so towards the middle of the day, I may switch over to some light jazz by sort of late afternoon. I'm really listening to some bebop and things like that. And then at night, I move into Afro pop, and it just makes me smile. It makes me feel good. Have you checked out D-Nice on Instagram, the DJ? 
DJ? Yes. Oh my gosh. Just unbelievable. Talk about the perfect panacea for these times. And then you see your friends' names flashing up in the chat room. And you know, you start to go, oh, I see you. Oh, all right. And there's Shaka Khan. (laughs) Oh, I love him. Yes. It's a wonderful time to really contemplate and feel, you know, the love that just comes from strangers and people who want to engage you wherever they find you in their own way. It's a beautiful thing. So could you read the most recent passage you wrote on Instagram, which is a small 777 for anyone who wants to go check it out? Ah, yes, yes. It is what it is. We are who we are. Human beings ill-equipped to manage life without the heartbeat, laughter and joy, the absence of another's embrace, grace and understanding. But be strong, courageous and steadfast. Joy will ultimately find us resilient in the coming mornings. Believe. Amen. Well, stay strong. Keep posting your dishes Mm -hmm. on Instagram and take good care. Thanks, Susie. You are a self-described social minister, James Beard, award-winning chef, restaurateur, author, singer, and tastemaker. What I found so intriguing is you spent decades in Europe as a classically trained opera singer. You have a Grammy and a Tony. Now, how did you pivot over to becoming a chef and restaurateur? You know, that's a really good question. (laughs) (laughs) And what I would say about that question is I've always been all these things. It was just really about when they were going to uh, take my life over at what particular time. And what I mean by that is that I grew up essentially uh, with my, uh, and I call them almost my uh, imaginary friends, but my two best friends was uh, food and music. They really described best who I was and how I saw the world. Uh, I think that for me, they were the two languages, uh, creative artistic expressions that suited my personality and kind of mapped my journey in life. The music was essentially the driving force that launched my career and took me to reasonable heights. And uh, I received a tremendous amount of satisfaction, but I hit a glass ceiling as a black male opera singer trying to break through to the elite level of classical music. Black women, for the most part, were exotic, and there were quite a few of them. But black men had a very difficult time, and often we had to go to Europe uh, and usually to Germany to really sing at these sort of vocal uh, factories where, you know, they would just abuse your voice. Uh, you would sing, you know, three, four times a day and probably come back home with a with a with a wobble and a vibrato completely out of whack and and basically a tired voice. And I had my third audition at the Metropolitan Opera. After my audition, um, singing two operas, the the voice from uh, the audience there, one of the directors said, oh, great job. We see the maturity in your voice. I had auditioned for them before. And I'd been living in Europe and studying at the Paris Opera House. And they said, well, we'd love for you to come and work with us. And we're doing Porgy and Bass, and we'd love you to do chorus and some small roles. 
Now, what you have to understand is that I already had a Grammy and Tony for the recording of Boy and Bass. So it was a frightful uh, slap and disappointment. And I went home and decided I was no longer going to pursue opera as a career. And I turned to my second best friend and love, which was food and hospitality. And I decided that I needed to take my living room public and open my own restaurant. So in the book, you dedicate it to your parents, their parents, and your ancestors. I'd love to hear a little bit about your family. Wow. Well, you know, I had a wonderful family, loving, supportive, generous. Um, I was very fortunate uh, when I was born, my aunt and uncle, who are living in Harlem, my aunt, a classical pianist, and my uncle, a chef, uh, and had worked in many New York restaurants and and had traveled around the world as a, a Navy man and a merchant marine. And he had taught himself Spanish and French. So what they did to enrich my life is probably why life really turned out the way it did. My aunt was my piano teacher. My uncle essentially taught me the, the art of dreaming and creativity through food. And the two of them I spent probably more time with, in, in, in some cases, uh, than my parents or my sisters, for that matter. But they had me as a young boy reciting Shakespeare, uh, reciting John Donne, uh, Langston Hughes. I was listening to opera, uh, Renato Tiboldi, Birgit Nilsson, uh, at such an early age, uh, Leontine Price, Mar- uh, 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 Marian Anderson, This was really the language for me uh, at an early age of seven uh, that carried through. And it was very early that I decided that I wanted to be an opera star. And my parents, who were horrified, they knew nobody that looked like me or them. They were frightened beyond measure. I mean, they wanted me to become a professional, a doctor, a lawyer, something that was in the realm of understanding But this idea of a classical musician, an opera singer, and they had nothing to compare that with, but they didn't say no. So this is how I evolved and basically won lots of classical music competitions, got scholarships to go to some of the best schools in the country. And that's how I started my career. And my family was right, right there supporting all of it. So when you think of your Uncle Joe, who was a chef and could also play piano by ear, but he couldn't read a note, do you think about him in your daily life? I feel like you've fulfilled a lot of his dreams. Oh, my. Yes. You are absolutely right. I mean, I think about them all the time. They are so much a part of my life, and uh, they are part of my inspiration, um, you know, I sit with the ancestors. I'm, I'm comfortable with the gifts, the knowledge, the sacrifices that they all made so that I have the platform that I have today and the knowledge and the passion and the belief that I can do anything if I put my mind to it. So speaking of ancestors, Julie Dash's incredible documentary called Daughters of the Dust shows oh, us yes. Gullah culture, the sea islands off the coast of South Carolina and Georgia. Tell us a little bit about that almost forgotten culture. What you'll have to understand is that while my father was born in Charleston, John's Island, and my grandfather, my grandmother from Beaufort, South Carolina, and this is all on my father's side. My mother's family was from what we call up country, 
and that would be Spartanburg, that area, uh, north of Columbia, north northwest. You know, I grew up eating very different things than my, my friends were eating. Um, their food was more like the foothills of Appalachia, the Piedmont, while our food was very Afrocentric. The influences of the Gullah Geechee people, the outer islands there, was the foundation of farming culinary that, that influenced my life. So uh, my father uh, would would uh, literally, while I was still sleeping, put me in the back seat of the car uh, along with uh, my sisters, and uh, uh, the caravan would leave Spartanburg for that journey to Charleston and Beaufort, South Carolina, Green Pond. It was like going, we used to say, uh, to the old country. It was so different a lot of farmland. But the life in Charleston was very interesting for me. It was very ritualistic. People uh, told stories and they spoke with thick Gullah Charleston Geechee accents, um, made it very difficult for us as a child to, to really understand what they were saying. But the food was just something unimaginable. You know, lots of seafood. We were on the coast. Lots of stews. One of my favorite dishes, a shrimp and okra stew, which in West Africa, it's shrimp and okra soup. Stews are soups in Africa versus here, uh, they're stews. And this is how I grew up. And this is how I understood life and the connection of the old country, which was the low country, to Spartanburg, where I lived, you know, with my family, my normal life. It was fascinating for me. By the end of the 19th century, South Carolina was the largest rice producer in America. The Gullah Geechee people were experts in growing rice, knowing the tides, how they flooded the fields, etc. One of the main dishes of the Gullah cuisine is red rice. Tell us about your Charleston spicy red rice. Well, you know, the red rice is really a takeoff of jalap rice which is the famous jalap rice that the Nigerians and the Ghanaians fight over all the time, who has the best. Uh, well, interestingly enough, there's really no contest because it was kind of created by the Senegalese. Yeah. <laughs> or not even in the conversation. <laughs> but yes, the, the, the red rice is something that we grew up on. I, I, less spicy, I think, in America than it was in Africa. And a main staple, you know, rice-built um, uh, South Carolina. When the slave traders were collecting enslaved people from West Africa, they understood exactly the type of workers that they need. And they purposely looked for these rice growers, these people that had the expertise. Okay, so I want to love okra, but... <laughs> I just, I don't get it. What do you recommend for us folks that think we don't like okra? Why don't you like okra? Do it, you know? Yeah, it's just slippery. Fibrous. Yeah. Slippery. <laughs> okay, so what I recommend always for my friends who say they don't like okra is my okra fries. And I fried them in rice flour. Crisp, delicate, scrumptious. Now, if you don't like fried okra, something's wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> or you're not having it fried right. So I've given you a recipe in, in, in uh, Mills Music and Muses. Hopefully that will help you get over the hump. But fried okra probably is the best approach. The second best approach is charred okra because that gets out all of the, 
the slicky part and it's charred crisp with a broiler on a grill and Again, it's it's a wonderful accompaniment. I, as a kid, would eat okra sandwiches, okay? <laughs> so what well, was on it? Well, a, slice, a fresh sliced tomato, fried okra, and something we call in the South Duke's mayonnaise, like your Hellman's mayonnaise here, only better. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and, you know, and sometimes a slice of cheddar cheese. So I want you to try that recipe and tell me about it. Okay. <laughs> so last night for dinner, I made your recipe for citrus whipped sweet potatoes on page 86 and your southern fried chicken on page 132. Can you describe these? you did a great these? job. Thank you. I saw it on IG and I was so proud of you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Can you describe <laughs> these recipes and talk a little bit about shoebox lunches? Well, let me start with shoebox lunches. I had a restaurant in Grand Central Station for 15 minutes. Unfortunately, uh, 9-11 happened and, and everything went to, I had just opened it. Um, but the name of the restaurant was called The Shoebox. And The Shoebox was in celebration of The Shoebox Lunch, which was the way in which people of color during segregation made sure that wherever they traveled, they had something to eat. It was very difficult finding Black-owned restaurants that they could go to. And this was also during the time when a very clever man from the South decided that Black travelers needed something called a green book. And that book sort of identified Black-owned businesses or businesses that were accepting a black business uh, when they traveled. So the shoebox lunch essentially was a discarded shoebox that was filled with food that traveled well, wrapped in wax paper most of the time, and then tied with twine. Now, this was this great story. My uncle often would go back and forth from South Carolina to New York, Harlem, on the train, Aunt Laura looked like a white woman. She was very pale. And Uncle Joe was very dark, but he spoke French and Spanish and passed himself off as a diplomat. And <laughs> so they would get to ride in the white car. Once Uncle Joe forgot the shoebox lunch that my grandmother had prepared him, because I think what he normally did was take the shoebox and then kind of discarded it or put the food in a pocketbook or something, a bag. Uh, it was too telltaling for him to walk on there with a shoebox lunch. So my grandmother, realizing that he had forgotten this, runs to, to, to the train going, son, son, you forgot. Oh, no. And the conductor, horrified, threw my uncle out of, and he was traveling without his wife, out of the white car and made him go <laughs> Oh, man. My mother used to love to tell that story. And so when I opened my restaurant in Grand Central Station, I thought how fitting to do something like that. And oftentimes you would find that fried chicken that you enjoyed the other night right in that shoebox. It was a perfect thing to travel because because it's fried. The oil is like preservatives. And you'd find, say, some cornbread. You'd find some cake, like the pound cake was a great traveler. And, of course, there was always cheese sandwiches. There would be carrots and celery, sort of crudite things. And 
if you were going to eat them quickly, you might find a few deviled eggs in there. And that was kind of like the appetizer to, to have once you got on the train, because they don't keep. <laughs> now for my segment called My Favorite Cookbook. What is your all-time favorite cookbook and why? Well, my all-time favorite cookbook is Charleston Receipts. It is a cookbook that is a collection of uh, Charleston Low Country recipes that was a constant companion in my home growing up. It really speaks to the food of the Low Country and the contributions of African American enslaved people who essentially were the hospitality and culinary practitioners. Because they were not allowed to read and write, recipes were often collected by the various families, and the family name went on them. But you knew in the details <laughs> who was really making that food. Yeah. But, you know, it, it really mirrors the roots of where I come from. And so uh, it has always been a constant companion in my home, uh, and I take great inspiration from it. Where can we find you on the web and social media? Well, I'm very active on Instagram. Um, I have also a page on Facebook uh, that I don't attend to as well as I do Instagram. And then there's alexandersmalls.com, which is my website. I am so thankful that you wrote this cookbook. Thanks so much for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed my chat with you, and uh, I appreciate all of the support and generosity that you've given me. Thanks a lot. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.